Hello and welcome to the Vote Her podcast, because when you vote, great things can happen. I'm Mara Davis, podcast host, talent booker. Uh, I I love Atlanta and today is going to be a very Atlanta focused show. So I'm excited for it. Yeah. And speaking of Atlanta focus, well, and hey, I'm Senator Jen. Sorry. <laughs> I kind of jumped ahead there <laughs> in terms of exactly where we were going to go. But you know, I think you and I thought that this year was going to be quiet politically, you know, kind of an off year. And then, man, once Mayor Bottoms announced that she wasn't running for re-election, it was like Katie bar the door. I mean, it has just exploded, which is why we're so excited that we are going to have former Mayor uh, Kasim Reed on today. I don't think Jen could believe it when I messaged her and I said, I got him. Yeah, I was like, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> but, um, you know, I guess uh, I just like I, I wouldn't give up. You know, Mary's re- got it. Remember, my real job is I'm a talent booker. So my, that is my job to just pester, pester, pester. Or it's like a, I'm like a lovable nudge. I mean, look, it's how I met you. That's true. <laughs> I always love a lovable nudge. So, um, of course, we're going to get into it with the mayor in just a little bit. But there has been some local news that that a lot of people are talking about that I wanted to ask you some questions about briefly before we get to the mayor. Uh, and the first is, is that the redistricting process is starting, especially with, you know, in light of SB 202 and everything that's going on. What does this mean? You know, can you dumb this down for me? Like, what does it mean? What can we do? Because I've been seeing they've been having town hall meetings where people have been able to speak out. So give me what's going on. Yeah. So basically what redistricting is, is how they draw the lines for districts. And so what does that mean? Well, if you think about what a, a district for a school board member is or for a city council member, I mean, it affects every level of government that you can think of, state senate, Congress, anything that's not a statewide office. Now, what's interesting about these purported town halls that they started last night and they're having the next couple of months is that none of them are really being held in Atlanta and in the most populous areas of the state, which you would think You know, if you really wanted people's input or if you were really trying to get input from everyone, you may would at least throw a bone to the largest city in the state, the capital city. Right. I mean, that seems to make sense. I mean, could that change? Could could. Look, I think what it shows is that it's just kabuki theater, that they don't really want input from people, that this really isn't about trying to interact with the community and and kind of an ebb and flow or back and forth. This is really them acting like, and when I say them, I mean the GOP controlled, you know, committees, them acting like, you know, they're out in the communities and trying to get feedback when the reality is the GOP is going to draw the lines exactly the way they want to draw the lines to basically make sure that they can keep power for as long as they possibly can. And that that's what is called gerrymandering that a lot of people hear about. What can people do? Can we do anything? Because I think we hear so much about this and this is always the fear and then why people are speaking out against this voting law. Like what, I mean, do we need to get on these town hall meetings? Yeah, I think people should. I think if you can go, go, you know, really, you know, really try to educate yourself on this. Y'all should Google something called the redistricting game. Okay. And it's literally a game that you can draw lines 
And what it shows you is just how significant that power is in terms of keeping communities together or, you know, uh, making sure that a certain person wins an election versus another person. And what's going to be really interesting this year is we don't get the census data till later. So we will have a special session probably in November of this year where we will adopt the maps and by that, what it's just like passing a law, right? Okay. We, we will, we will vote on the maps, and of course, the majority party basically controls that process and controls the maps at the end of the day. And so, just educate yourself on what it means. Find out where the lines are going to be. You know, show up because I think when folks think no one's looking or no one's shining a light on something, that's when they do the really, really bad stuff. That's what we saw with the voting bill, right? And so to the extent that we can push back, it still may be bad, but it may not be as bad as it could be if nobody was actually calling folks out on it. Okay. Next thing I want to get to quickly, and, you know, I always say I don't want to give credit to Marjorie Taylor Greene, but you do not want to give credit. Oh, I don't want to give her credit. I don't even want to bring her up. Yeah. But I was fascinated by this because I'm curious for you from a political uh, strategy standpoint. She went to the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C. Have you ever been there? I have. I mean, you go there. It'll change your life. It. it, Yeah. If you. yeah. You're not the same when you leave no, that. you're not. Uh, you know, at the very end, you see all the shoes. I mean, I think that's what people talk about is, you know, you see all the shoes of the, of the people that died, children, you know, women and men, all of that. So she stages, she goes to the Holocaust Museum and then she comes out and she gives a press conference. I have made a mistake and it's really bothered me for a couple of weeks now. And so I definitely want to own it. This afternoon, I visited the Holocaust Museum Holocaust is, there's nothing comparable to it. It's, it's, it happened and, you know, over six million Jewish people were murdered. More than that, there were not just Jewish people, black people, Christians, all kinds of children, people that, that the Nazis didn't believe were good enough. Okay. Now, apparently she went to Auschwitz when she was young. And now I have never been to Auschwitz, but I've heard it's the same sort of devastating feeling for obvious reasons. Was this orchestrated by people? Did people sit her down and say, you're going to be censured? There's so much anti-Semitism going on right now. We need to just, you know, this is a PR Band-Aid. Or is it really real? Look, I think the simple answer is yes. I think that this, I don't think there's anything real about she who we shall not name. I think this was performative politics. I think that you are seeing, you know, I think that the powers that be went to her and said, lady, you really crossed the line now and, and you need to, to walk this back. And, and she did, like a good soldier. But I, this isn't like a change of heart. I mean, you could see how she was reacting to questions and answering things. I mean, you know, this this isn't about anybody else but her. And yeah, I would not take this as a sincere it's so weird. I want to give somebody the benefit of the doubt, it's, it's, uh, and I'm not. But I think some people can do something really, really bad. And then, like, like I look at Michael Vick, for example, like, you know, he, I feel like, did a lot of the work. No, I think, I think that I absolutely, listen, I grew up as a Southern Baptist. I believe in redemption. Yeah. That is, that is everything 
you know, in ter- and, and I think a lot of people believe in that. But at the end of the day, it has to be real. Yeah, I, I just think it was amazing how she was like, wow, the Holocaust was really bad. It's like, how? Yeah. Like, so I think that was where. So do you think does that make it better or does that make it worse? I mean, because I feel like the damage has already been done. I, I just don't think you can put a Band-Aid on the things. But then again, in, in her circles, maybe it it, it does. Look, I think it just gives some of the Republican leadership cover so they can say to, you know, their wealthy supporters who are probably putting significant pressure on them that, look, she apologized. She walked it back. I mean, they did what they needed to do to cover their backsides. You know, like I said, she walked in. She did what she needed to do as a good soldier. But let's let's not be fooled. This was not some kind of sincere, you know, change of heart. I mean, when somebody shows you who you are, believe it. And girlfriend has shown us time and time again who she is. Well, she showed us again, too, when they wanted to make the D.C. police and the Capitol Police heroes. And it is very sad that Representative Heiss and Clyde and uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, how do you vote against the Capitol Police? It, it, it absolutely blows my mind. Well, that's just it. That's when you see that a lot of these positions that politicians take in terms of trying to pit people against the police or the police against, you know, certain citizens, you know, and they try to kind of fan those flames, you know, acting like that they're pro back the blue, all that kind of stuff, right? That when the rubber really hits the road for these working men and women who put their lives on the line, that, you know, they're always going to put their politics, you know, over the people. Yeah, that's really, that's really gross. Okay, well, let's get to our guest because this is a big get. I mean, we thought we, we you know, we thought we were a big deal when we got Andrew Yang. Yeah. <laughs> Can we walk that back a little bit now? Like, right. wow. <laughs> let's talk about redemption. <laughs> yeah. So uh, we'll shift from the New York mayoral race to the one right here in Atlanta. So today we have a big guest. This is the mayor of Atlanta. Mary Kasim Reed successfully ran in 2009 and then ran for a second term in 2013 and now running for mayor again, the first mayor since Maynard Jackson to seek a third term in office. And he is with us here today on the Vote Her podcast. Mayor Kasim Reed, great to talk to you. I'm so glad to be with you always. Delighted I'm a fan. Uh, I think you're very thoughtful, thought-provoking, and I'm, I'm looking forward to a good conversation. Well, great. The first question is, why are you running for mayor a third time? I'm running for mayor because what is happening in the city of Atlanta has broken my heart. I've never seen our city in the condition that it is in right now. And it's really a calling of the heart for me. I was not uh, going to challenge Mayor Bottoms, but when she made the decision to focus on spending time with on her family in the next phase of her life. I thought that there was a massive vacuum. And I think that the city of Atlanta is in a position right now of grave risk. I believe that the movement to form a city of Buckhead is very real. Uh, there is a referendum for that effort in November of 2022. I don't know if it's avoidable, but I do believe that we should do everything in our power to turn the tide of crime and violence uh, that is driving people literally away from our city. 
I also think that the relationship between the state of Georgia and the city of Atlanta is the worst that I've seen it in my lifetime. Whether people realize it or not, that is a critical relationship to their everyday lives if you are a city of Atlanta resident. And then I think that uh, our city you know, has a big human need post 525 and post the death of George Floyd. Uh, I think that we should be leading as the cradle of the civil rights movement in the United States of America. And there are a lot of human efforts that we need to be leading on. And I think that um, right now you need someone who has been through this before. When I got elected in 2009, um, the country was in the midst of the worst financial crisis since the Great Depression. Um, The city was in a very challenging time and environment. And uh, I did a a reasonably good job of navigating the city through that time. And so I think I'm the right person for right now. So with respect to what you said in terms of the relationship between the city of Atlanta and the state of Georgia, you said it was the worst that you had, you know, that you had ever seen it. It is. And so so talk to me in terms of who do you point the finger at with respect to that? Like, why do you think it is as bad as it is right now? Yeah, I'm not going to point the finger. I just know that it is, and any serious person that does an analysis of it would would have to say so. I mean, I've never seen in my life the state of Georgia purchase a piece of city-owned property in a direct transaction with the Atlanta City Council outside of the involvement of the mayor of the city and then have that mayor have the veto of that transaction overreach. I've never seen that ever. I think that Governor Nathan Deal and I had as good as a relationship as any mayor and any governor to hold the jobs that we held. And we worked very diligently at that. And then we got together and decided that we agreed on about 20% of the things. And we worked very aggressively on the 20% of things that we agreed on. And as a result, you have a motion picture industry that's one of the most dynamic in the United States. That would have been impossible without the relationship between myself and the governor. We grew a sector from a $400 million sector when we started. And when I left office and when the governor left office, that was a $9.5 billion sector employing 34,000 people uh, in the city and the state of Georgia. The Port of Savannah, when we started, Um, was in need of deepening. That's the second largest economic generator in our state behind Hartsfield-Jackson. And our work uh, on the Port of Savannah getting more than 100 approvals from President Obama's administration uh, is allowing the Port of Savannah to have the best uh, years that it's record-setting years. And that port is being deepened right now. Um, Once again, People don't realize how much what happens at that port impacts Atlanta, but it's an example of the kind of things that that a governor and a mayor can do um, working uh, in partnership. And there's so many other examples, but I don't want to, you know, take up all of your time on that. But it is a it's a vital relationship that uh, we nurtured very hard over a long period of time, and to see the city's relationship where it is right now, uh, I think is having a real, real negative consequences and repercussions, Senator. Well, the deal is in terms of your relationship with Governor Deal. I mean, I, I remember at the time that it was it was significant and important. 
So with respect to that, and I know even at your announcement, two of Governor Deal's top aides were present there, uh, Chris Riley and Ryan Teague. Yes. So, but I think we can all agree that Governor Deal is very different from Brian Kemp. And so the question is, what can you do or what would you do differently going into this office um, and understanding you don't want to point fingers, but what would you do differently in terms of trying to turn this relationship around with a governor who hasn't necessarily seemed open to having a positive relationship with Atlanta? Well, I think, Senator, you know from serving uh, uh, under the Gold Dome as well and as ably as you do that personal relationships developed over years matter. Um, I happen to have served um, with Governor Kemp when he was in the state Senate and developed a personal relationship with him. Whether folks realize it or not, that matters. It doesn't mean that he and I agree on everything, but it does mean that we can always have a conversation. So I think that that's kind of the, the foundational aspect of it. The other point that I, I, I would share is that uh, Governor Deal and I never had a public disagreement but we had disagreements. And so we had uh, a standing rule that when there were matters of controversy or of concern, whether on his side or my side, that we would have those conversations privately and that they would not become a part of the public discourse because that was negative for our competitiveness. But, you know, do you think the climate is is different now? I mean, we're we're looking at it's it is different. I mean, so, yeah, I mean, it's true. It was a time with Governor Deal where he was willing to have a conversation and to listen to people. I think we've entered a political era where things are so tribal. So can you really accomplish that now? I feel like I can. I mean, I, I feel that I can that I can improve it. I feel that I can make it better than it is today. And I feel like that relationship is an essential relationship because, as you both know, cities are nothing but an imagination of the state. That's right. The state can impact a city at any moment in a variety of ways, negative and positive. And if you don't understand that relationship dynamic in a very personal way, then your city is put in harm's way. And so I think that I can do better than it is right now because I have literally 25 years of relationships with people uh, at the Georgia State Capitol, both in the House and in the Senate, that I've known since I was 29 years old. And many of those members are still serving, and many of those members who are no longer serving still enjoy influence and can be a good guide for you on what needs to happen and introduce you to the new players at the Georgia State Capitol. And the bottom line is, is I always said when I was mayor that the governor's office was about 333 steps away from mine. And I believed uh, in, in uh, shoe diplomacy. I mean, you get up and you walk across and you see people and you sit in a room and you try to work it out. And I find that to be far more effective than the current environment that I see right now without casting any aspersions on other people's styles. So other people have different styles, but my style um, led to the most prosperous economy that the city of Atlanta has had in 40 years. We went from $400 million in construction to $5 billion in construction, the largest population growth the city of Atlanta has ever had, largest job growth, largest relocation of corporate and regional headquarters into the Atlanta city limits. 
And so I think that those things came about certainly largely because we worked in a cooperative fashion um, with our state partners. Okay. Well, one of the interesting things for our listeners is that you've pointed out is that Nathan Deal was a member of the state Senate. Brian Kemp was a member of the state Senate. You were a member of the state Senate. And you're correct. It really is about relationships. And a lot of times, you know, you can fight it out, you know, when you need to. But you do have to approach people like human beings and and have conversations and be respectful at some level. And um, really, that is the only way to move forward on a lot of these really, really tough issues. Yeah, and I think that's why you've been able to get things done. Uh, you know that the Senate is different than, than the House. Um, you know what it's like to be in the ante room. You know that there's a different energy and rhythm to the Senate chamber than it is to the House. And so that's why um, your own record, even being in the minority, um, you know what it takes on a personal level in order to get things to move in that building. See, look, he's, so, he's, he's building a relationship yeah, with see, you right now. But I'm just saying for the city of Atlanta to sell a piece of real estate, a street, without involving the mayor, and then for the mayor to veto that legislation and have that veto overridden, and then to have a piece of legislation that eliminates 20 to 25% of the general fund, right, is scheduled to be on a ballot in November of 2022, which is in the middle of what will be a hotly contested election between Stacey Abrams, who will be the Democratic nominee, and Governor Kemp. Do we know that for sure? I mean, are you... You, you, don't, are you, you don't think that that's a perilous situation for Atlanta. Uh, then, you know, maybe we're just reading different data. Do you have intelligence that we don't have? Because does Stacey officially feel confident she's officially announcing? Are you having? I feel really confident she's going to announce. And I think she's going to have an absolutely clear path to the Democratic nomination. And everybody understands in no uncertain terms that she has earned the right to a clear path. Absolutely. I don't I, I don't think any Democrat would, you know, disagree on that point. Yeah. So here you are, you're running for mayor for the third time. And, you know, yes. it's 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 easy for people to say, well, gosh, why would he do that? He's got, you know, that's what kind of big ego does that? So how would you answer to that? You know, saying that, you know, this is like you like being in the spotlight. Yes, you're doing the work, but, um, you know, people are going to criticize that while you're doing it. Yeah, I, I would find that I think that everybody's entitled to their opinion. That's not what drives me. I wasn't plotting on running for me. I think that that criticism would be much more valid if I hadn't I hadn't had a single meeting, organization, poll, any of that stuff that you do when you're planning to run. I hadn't done any of that, Mark. I was very much living my life. There was one issue that I thought that I had a right as a citizen to comment on, which was crime. I don't think that I don't think that there's a term limit on being a citizen. And when my daughter Maria Kristen is being dropped off at a condominium in Buckhead, and her and her grandmother are robbed within five minutes, I get to care about that. When I have a friend who's the victim of a carjacking and then chases the carjacker and can't you know can't get a good response, I can care about that. Um, when my mom goes to a Chick-fil-A at the Colony Square to get her number one, and I look on television and someone is robbing a Chick-fil-A in broad daylight, I'm a citizen. 
And the only comments that I ever made were about crime. And aside from that, I was living a very private life. I wasn't commenting on anybody or anything. I was just going and uh, helping raise money and investing in technology businesses and minding my own business and having a good time at it. The mayor made the decision to, to, to um, take her life in a different direction. I didn't call myself. I received hundreds of telephone calls that to encourage me to run. We opened our campaign on Wednesday, and in 15 hours, we raised $550,000. We had the largest mayoral fundraiser in the history of the city. So I'm not calling myself, and I'm not giving myself the money to, to fund the campaign. We'll probably cross a million dollars on tomorrow. What's been interesting is that you talked about how you've been living your life as a private citizen. And I think one of the the main questions that, that people, when I, I was talking to some friends last night about you coming on, and they were like, what's he been doing? Because you have kept such a low public profile. What have you been doing since you were mayor? I've been raising money and helping technology businesses raise money. That's what I've been doing. And I've done pretty well at it. Uh, the most recent company that I'm a part of is a business called JetDot, which is a telehealth platform. It's done remarkably well. And uh, I have a series of other businesses that I use my Rolodex in order to assist them. But the interesting thing, Senator, is I gave a talk in March of 2018 where I said exactly what I was going to do. I got to know Atlanta's startup scene really well when I was mayor, and I thought it was extremely promising. And that's what I've been doing um, with my time. And if you look at any public comments I've made, it's really been in light of talking about what a terrific um, startup and technology ecosystem we have in the city of Atlanta. Yeah. And if I were not running for mayor, that's what, you know, that's what I would do right now. I'm getting ready to sign up, sign a book deal. So I'm in the process of doing that, which I was in the process of before all of this started. And uh, and I've been doing a good amount of speaking. That's been my life. Well, good time for telehealth, for sure. I mean, your your timing was really good on that. Yeah, it was really interesting. The yeah. year before JetDoc was launched, there were 800,000 telehealth visits. And then during COVID, there were 1.8 billion. So we really got um, lucky uh, on the timing. But, you know, when I left office, uh, my father was dying of two cancers. So he had multiple myeloma and he has prostate cancer. So my first two years of office, my stepmother and my brothers and I did what families do. We had an around the clock team um, taking care of my dad. So that's what I've been doing. I lost him last March. It broke my heart. And then uh, and then I've been in the carpool line at Atlanta International School. Love that. So when, when I'm, you know, when I'm early in the carpool line, it just finished a couple of weeks ago. But I mean, that felt like winning an election. So, <laughs> well, I feel you. Are you still going to get in the carpool line now? I mean, absolutely. Okay. Yeah, Bria loves it. Yeah, she loves it. She loves it when she comes out and sees me. But Sarah Elizabeth, my former wife, she had done all of that. Yeah. So it was, uh, she really enjoyed, you know, me, me managing uh, Maria Christine. So, by the way, we're both so sorry about the loss of your father. That's, um, yeah, you know, so. you know, a loss of a parent is such a heavy thing, especially when you're it caring for read. them. It never read. Yeah. Um, so switching gears a little bit, as far as like the, the biggest hot topic, I think, when it comes to the city of Atlanta right now is is mostly what's happening 
in Buckhead and with the high crime and things happening at Lenox Mall and things, you know, Buckhead wants to be its own city. Um, there's been a lot of talk about that. So can you brief us a little bit about about your thoughts on what's going on with all or, that? Or maybe more specifically, what would you do? Like if you if if we were to wave a magic wand and you were going to become mayor of the city of Atlanta again tomorrow, what what would be like the three top things you would do as soon as you walked into the door? Specifically, with respect to dealing with the crime issue? Yeah, well, well I don't want to unveil my strategy, but I'm not going to be coy. <laughs> I think that, I think the first thing that you really need to do is to sit down and listen and absorb the anger that people are feeling because they feel like they're not being heard. And so I would spend probably a week to 10 days really listening to people who are just experiencing extraordinary frustration. The second thing that I would do was to uh, hire the best chief in America that I could possibly find. Uh, And really, whether that chief is from within the department or without, I think that we need to go in a new direction regarding the leadership of the department. Uh, And then I would hire 900 police officers, which is what I hired before. We're going to have to do that gradually, and it's going to take a lot of hard work. Um, But as I said, we've done it before. We, we built the biggest police department in the history of the city of Atlanta. On the day I left office, crime was at 40-year lows in the city of Atlanta. So it's not like when I say it, I, I know that it's just a grinding, brutal process. You need coordination of the business, civic and philanthropic community. And then I think after we hired the police officer, I would probably go to UASI when I was mayor I was chair of the Urban Area Security Initiative, and I would try to form a partnership across the regions and declare an emergency in a region to have a coordinated policing efforts with the members of the Urban Area Security Initiative. I would then partner with MARTA as well. I would take personnel out of the city of Atlanta's typical HR process, and I would put that HR process within the Atlanta Police Department. That will cut down on the amount of time it takes to onboard and hire police. And then I would go to a series of roll calls and I would look the line officers and the command staff in the eye and say that we're going to have their support, but we're going to have them treat our off, treat people of in, uh, who they're uh, involved with uh, in a respectful way. I then would uh, secure the services of the leading sensitivity training firm in the United States and make sure that while we are being muscular around the crime issue, that we're also going above and beyond uh, on training as well. I then would open the 33 recreation centers that run throughout the city of Atlanta until 7 p.m., seven days a week. And I would make them available for working moms and working families to have a safe haven for their children uh, to be. When I was mayor, we cut teen crime by 25 points, largely using uh, our centers of hope. Um, We started off providing set snacks, but at the end of the day, we started providing hot meals in those recreation centers. It does a very good job of pulling young people um, off the streets and giving them a structured environment. So they're just, those are just some of the things that I would do. I would also take the 75 um, long gun officer rapid deployment capability that we built when I was mayor, 
and I would have it focus uh, on our major malls um, so that when officers are in those malls, um, they're not there by themselves, but there's a locally deployed rapid capability um, to provide them um, with greater um, support. Okay. Those are just a few of the things that I would do. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's a lot. That's a lot. So switching gears a little bit. Yes. Understanding that you you feel kind of called to run now because of the crime issue. Yeah. And, and what's happening in the city. There have been a lot of criticisms with respect to your past administration in terms of um, that there were insufficient controls in place in terms of, of spending of some of your top officials. And it, it's kind of it's been in the papers recently. And so how how do you answer those criticisms in terms of your past administration? Well, the way that I would answer those criticisms is to say that uh, I am human and I work to improve like anyone else would work to improve. But you have to look at the entirety of someone's record. And so that's what's going to be put uh, in front of the city of Atlanta. I mean, I have a detailed plan to make sure that those kinds of mistakes don't happen again. Um, Just for example, one of the things that we're going to do is we're going to have lobbyist registration the way that you all do at the Georgia State Capitol. So anybody that's lobbying in the mayor's office or lobbying the Atlanta City Council will have to be badged and register who they're representing so that if you walk into a room, you know what everybody in the room is doing. I would fi- I find that to be helpful. No person who's ever had a bankruptcy of any kind will be allowed to serve in my administration in any capacity. Uh, I think that that would be meaningful. It certainly would have influenced uh, the last crisis that we had around this issue. Um, We're going to have quarterly ethics training so that we never take our eye off the ball of making sure that we're operating in an ethically appropriate way. We're also going to have an ethics council at the city. And we will also, myself and my direct reports, will all publicly release and share our personal income tax returns on April 15th of every year. Those are just a few of the things that we would do to move the needle. But like I said just a few minutes ago in a talk that I was given, if you if you look at the instances that have been brought to my attention and that the public has been made aware of, but I've, I've accepted complete responsibility for what happened in my administration. But I also want uh, complete responsibility for having the best employment numbers, for having the highest population growth, for having AAA credit from Standard & Poor's, Moody's & Fitch, from leaving a $200 million reserve, from never having raised taxes, from never raising water rates when I was mayor, from reforming the, the pension system. And so what I'm going to put forward, Senator Imara, is my entire record and who at a moment when the city is in gra- at grave risk that every serious person can see and feel um, is the most capable to deal with where we are right now. And so whatever the result uh, is from that, I'll be happy to live with it. Okay, so that's all right. Well, you got it down. Now, here's I know you're busy, so we so appreciate you giving us some time. I've just been at this a week. (laughs) So you've been qualified. I I put in a form to collect money on Wednesday, like Wednesday morning. Yeah, you had a big party that we all wanted to go to. It looked like a lot of fun. So I want to kind of end this on a sweet note. You were the mayor already twice. And you you clearly 
love Atlanta. And I think Atlanta Atlanta, people, we have a passion for this city. It's it's, it's really very, very personal because, you know, I think it's the best place to live. So give us like the top, the top three best parts uh, about Atlanta or, or your Atlanta. Cascade Road Nature Preserve is a place that you have to go and spend an afternoon. They have this waterfall and it's you never know it's there, but it's just a great place to walk alone or with somebody you care about. So Maria Kristen and I go, she loves it. She loves putting her feet in the water, uh, in the waterfall over there. So that'd probably be my number one. My number two would be the active oval at Piedmont Park, um, which I love. You know, my mom lives in Colony Square, so I'm over at Piedmont Park in Midtown uh, all of the time. So I love that. And then um, I like the ML King corridor over by the beautiful because it feels like Atlanta. When I'm over there, it feels like all of Atlanta. That whole AU center feel, the energy that's over there, it's probably one of my, those are my three most favorite parts of the city. And if you go, we really beautified our ML King Jr. Drive over there because I said that our ML King should look different than other ML Kings in the United States. And as a result of an $8 million Tiger grant uh, granted by President Obama to my administration, um, that corridor is really transforming in a powerful way. Well, Mayor Reed, it is so cool to have you. We also, uh, I mean, you know, you like your food. I mean, we yeah, could have a whole other. <laughs> we, we could have a whole other. Oh, we could have a whole other show about just the where the places you like like to eat. Well, listen, we've learned it's terrible. I've been having the diet. I had to fit in that suit last week. It was terrible. <laughs> oh, the quarantine did it all to us. Yeah. Listen, we've learned a lot. We've learned your platforms. We yeah. have learned you're in the carpool line. Yes. And uh, your mom. That's what I say when I get a good spot. Yes. (laughs) Your mom likes the Chick-fil-A number one. She does. I'll I'll say that I think that the the best thing about this interview, Mr. Mayor, is how much you referenced your daughter. And um, and that's 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 really nice. That's really nice to hear. Yeah. Well, Senator, thank you so much. and, uh, And good luck to you. And thank you for your service to the state. All right, we'll be watching. Thank you, Mayor. All right, God bless you all. Well, that was great. We we had a deep conversation with Mayor Reed. I guess he's not mayor for the third time, but we call him mayor forever, right? Yeah, everybody, you stay with the, the last honorific of the highest office. Honorific. Yeah, it's kind of like Ambassador Young. Yes. Or, you know, always call a president a president, that kind of thing. That's a great word. Honorific. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the funny thing is, though, have you ever heard anybody refer to former Mayor Reed as his honor? No. Yeah. When you asked him about kind of the ego or the questions about ego, um, that's what I was thinking because that, you know, he he did have some Twitter spats. Okay. And, and it'll it'll be interesting if he pulls that persona, that social media, Your media honor. persona kind Your of honor. back. Wow. His honor. His honor. His All honor. All right. Well, 
I mean, okay. We'll, see. well, we're gonna have to see. We're gonna be watching a will. And by the way, I would love to have the other candidates on Vote Her podcast as well. So, you know, we've got some time. And so we will extend those invitations out there. And we only went to Mayor Reed first because I have a very light relationship with him. Light. You probably know him better than I do. I, but I, you know, I think he's a big fan of Atlanta Eats and. Oh yeah, I mean, you've, you've interviewed him before. <laughs> so, so, okay, so this happened. You know, this is the Vote Her podcast, and it we're really uh, we love empowering women and uh, electing women. And I was just so taken by Vice President Harris. Coming off a rough couple of weeks, by the way, she's had some like hiccups of not like handling things great. Um, but I feel like this was planned for a long time at the U.S. Naval Observatory where the vice president residences. She held a dinner for all 24 Republican and Democrat female senators at her residence for a bipartisan dinner. I love this. I started seeing these photos on Twitter and it just, I, I, and you know, not only did, you know, she made the cheese puffs. It was a three course meal, by the way. I looked at the menu. <laughs> I studied Of course it. you did. <laughs> yes. The menu looked good, but she had cheese puffs that she made, Jen, to pass around with cocktails. But I So I do another podcast called Sounds Delicious with Kim Severson. So Kim Severson was my guest from the New York Times and we were discussing this deeply. And her point about this was who did the seating arrangements? Oh, I would have totally, if I, if I were the vice president, I would have, I would have made sure that, that, that I knew exactly where everybody was going to be. So they purposely had Murkowski sitting next to Vice President Harris, which I think was really smart. When I first heard about this, I was like, oh, you know, there's there's Ernst and Blackburn, which are two of the furthest, I feel like, would you agree they're the two furthest right senators, maybe? Yes? No? Blackburn is just a hot mess. I mean, and Ernst... What's interesting about her is that that now that she's out in an election year, she's kind of pulled back a little bit and she joined with Kirsten uh, Gillibrand um, on the sexual assault thing in terms of the military and kind of softened some of her views with respect to that. I think Blackburn may be the worst. Okay, well, they separated those two, which I love because, right, you can't walk into the vice president's home and say, I don't want to sit here. They're like, they have to sit there. So Blackburn is is sitting with Senator Hirono. Uh, no, I don't think she is. Oh, wait. So she's sitting with Tammy Duckworth. I'm sorry, I got that wrong. Yes. Uh, and I think Jackie Rosen. Hirono was sitting with Ernst. And, uh, and Klobuchar. Yes, yes. So if you had to pick one person that you wanted to sit by at this dinner, who would it be? Oh, Elizabeth Warren. Really? Yeah. Oh my gosh. She would talk about policy all night long. I just feel like she's like, I could get her, I, I'd want to talk to her about like what TV shows she's watching. Cause I know she made a joke that she loves watching the show Ballers. And like, so to me, like, I, I, I listen, so many of these women are amazing, but I feel like she could really get down and dirty and have a good time. What about you? 
So I would probably want to sit in between Maisie Hirono and Amy Klobuchar. Okay, I like her too. I like I like them both too. Hirono is a as a hoot, and then Klobuchar she can have quite a biting sense of humor. So I think it after a couple of glasses of wine, it may be kind of fun. I just first of all, I love the idea of this women and the bipartisanship because I isn't it amazing when a bunch of women get together for a dinner, even though they're totally disagreeing on so many things. I bet every single one of these ladies left saying, you know what. That was a lot of fun. Except for Marsha Blackburn. <laughs> I think even she had fun. I okay. think someone talked about the cheese puffs. That's something she can relate to. She's from Tennessee. She, what do you mean cheese puffs in Tennessee? Come oh, on. I, I don't know. You know, I guess, <laughs> I, you know, I love seeing by uh, an effort of bipartisanship. And I, I think... If you just put these women in charge of everything, they get everything done. I I can absolutely agree with that. You know what I mean? Like there'd be no BS. There'd be no lollygagging. There was probably, you know, if you're at a table of 24 men, you know, everybody's jockeying probably for the power and the center of attention. And I don't believe that that was the case in this crowd. No, no. These are um, very powerful women. So it's pretty incredible if you think about it. I mean, you know, I bet there was talk about grandkids. Uh, well, you know, when did what shot did you get? Uh, just like, you know, senators, they're just like us. That's what they say. <laughs> <laughs> Would you consider doing that at your house with some of the female leadership in the state house in Georgia? So maybe there's not a lot. I have to say there aren't a lot of Republican women. You know, I think we've got two total in the state Senate. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm not I'm not sure. I will say that I've done it in my practice where we have invited um, I do plaintiff's work and we've invited women defense lawyers to come and I've cooked for them because um, the whole point is trying to see each other as human beings. And, you know, we can fight and, you know, we can just go to the mat every day. But at the end, but we can also respect each other and, and you know, and, and break bread every now and then. I think it really goes a long way. Listen, uh, give credit to Jen Hobby, you know, who's a radio host in Atlanta. Oh, yeah, she's great. Uh, she used to organize these women of radio dinners, and I have made some really solid relationships from those dinners that she used to have. I mean, it's sad that radio has no women left in it. It's, now it's like you're dining by yourself at the bar. <laughs> well, I think that's it. I think that when you talk about these these places or these professions where women really are kind of the super minority, that you really can't discard half of the people there. Yeah. I mean, you you almost have to say, all right, we're all right, women, we're in it together. And and so I think it's great. I think the optics are great. I'm sure the cheese puffs were great, and you know, I'm sure that uh. There was a lot of laughter. It looks like it. Hearts of Palm salad. That's that's a miss for me. Oh, I like Hearts of Palm. (laughs) You know, we'll have to cover that some other time. That's right. Uh, Well, we want to thank our editor and producer, Christina Loringer, for always being there for us and Terminus Records. And they, by the way, Terminus Records, the music that you're hearing now, they've reissued a lot of their music on vinyl. So go ahead and uh, Google Terminus Records to find out more about that. And we had a little bit of a hiatus, but, you know, give us a break. We've been taking some time away but Jen's very busy but uh, we'll be back for you next time 